Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrison, who is charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Kanarek and Robert Goodwin in Long Valley, New Jersey. Kanarek was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrison's weapon, and as it was undisputed that Barrison fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting, and in the alternative because he fired those shots in self-defense. In our last episode, we began to explore the testimony of Charles Hassan, a psychologist who observed and performed tests on Michael Barrison within three months of the shooting. On today's installment, we continue our look at the testimony of Dr. Hassan. That's all coming up right after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's approaching mid-afternoon on April 6, 2022, day 8 of the Barrison trial. Edward Blankus continues his direct examination of Dr. Charles Hassan, whose testimony as a psychologist supplements the testimony of psychiatrist Dr. Stephen Simring regarding the defendant's mental state. In the first part of his testimony, Dr. Hassan told the jurors about validity testing that he performed on Michael Barrison to determine whether the defendant was feigning his mental afflictions. Blinkus follows up on that testimony with more questions about how the witness came to verify the validity of his empirical observations. Any other validity testing? Well, there was two others. I did two other uh, personality tests. I look at personality from a different perspective. Well, why did you look at a personality test in evaluating Well, for the simple reason, if you're a forensic psychologist or psychiatrist or whoever it might be, you want to make sure that you're not being misled, having your own biases. You want to look, look at uh, the person you're interacting with, and you don't want to be skewed in a certain direction. So I like to do a lot of testing to see if uh, I'm missing something. So the tests have validity scales. I might say, well, someone is uh, perfectly, you know, well or not. And if the testing is, comes out in a different way, I have to scratch my head and look more deeply. Did you do any personality tests? And, and if so, what specific test did you do? Well, as I mentioned, I did uh, the MMPI, the Rorschach, the PAI. They all look at abnormal aspects of personality. But I wanted to compare it to other tests that look at normal personality. And why, because why did you want to look at that? Because I, I wanted to check on my own views to see if I was accurate, to see if these other tests were accurate. It's called construct validity. I wanted to check it out. And what does that mean? Explain that to the jury. Well, there's a concept in psychology called multi-trait matrix. And what that means is you want to give multiple measures from different situations and to see if they all agree with each other, right? If there's agreement, you can say, well, you know what? That may be an accurate finding. And so it's a check. I do the testing as a check on myself and also a check on the tests. The two other tests that I gave measure normal traits. If you have an excess or a low amount of a certain trait, 
It can cause psychological problems. Those two tests agreed with the MMPI and the PAI and also the Rorschach. Basically, on the uh, 16PF, it's um, developed on a factor analysis approach. But anyway, there were four ele- four elevations on the test, if I'm recalling, you know, clearly. One was called uh, Q4. has a very high level of anxiety and depression. Another uh, was a very low score on C. Um, this test divides all of the scores in tenths. There's 10, 1, 2, 3, there's 10 of them. If you have a, a, a score of 1 or a score of 10, that's a very uh, elevated score either way. Now, the score down on C was emotional instability. He had a score of 1, which is similar to the Rorschach and similar to the other tests, that he's unstable emotionally. He could be emotionally upset a little more easily than other people. And did the tests that you testified to so far all... Uh, coincide with each other as far as the uh, bottom line results? Yeah, they did. And and what does that tell you from a uh, practitioner standpoint? Emotionally unstable. Other tests indicate that uh, he could easily be moved into a uh, a psychotic state. Psychotic state is just a break with reality. Some of the tests show that he has very idiosyncratic thinking. The Rorschach showed the over-inclusive thinking. It's a technical term. But all it simply means that if you meet with uh, Michael Barrison and you're talking with him, it's really hard to do a clinical interview with him because he's all over the place. Did you do any cognitive tests? Yes, I did. And, and again, why would you do a cognitive test in a uh, psychiatric evaluation? Because when I came in and I tried to interview him, and, I, and by the way, the reason I did it over seven sessions was it's very hard for someone to play act over a long period of time. If you see someone who's play acting, there's a movement towards normality as time goes on because it's hard to keep up the act. There was no change with him. He was uh, crying, sobbing. At one point, the officer who was outside, he called me over and said, are you okay? Because he heard him like ranting and raving. He was very upset. And um, because of that, I suspect that he had some kind of problem, you know, neurologically or with attention or whatever it might be. So I decided to investigate that. Okay, and is that why you did cognitive tests? Yes. What specific cognitive test did you do? Well, first, I gave uh, a full IQ test because it could tell you if he has deficits in certain areas. The test is called the Wexler Intelligence Scale, and there's a part on it that measures verbal abilities, nonverbal ability, working memory where you could do two things at the same time, whistle and, uh, you know, play guitar. I'm being facetious. But it measures uh, two cognitive things at the same time psychomotor speed, and it also gives a full-scale IQ. I gave that. I found out that on that testing, he has a problem with uh, working memory. It's a variation of attention. And uh, then I also checked out his verbal IQ is up here, and his working memory is over here. It's 20 points lower. What does that tell you from a... It's a relative deficit in uh, working memory, attention. And how does that relate to well, and I also asked him about his childhood. He said that uh, he always had trouble maintaining focus in school, right? But I noticed that when he'd be talking to me, he would be repeating himself constantly as if like he couldn't remember what he just said. And then he'd be all over the place. And it was very hard to keep up with him. So the way I did it was I ignored any extra talk and I wrote down phrase by phrase. And then when I came back to it, I said, well, you just said such and such. And I continued that way. It was a little bit more tedious, but I can get a comprehensive interview done with him. Now, because uh, I saw that there was a problem with working memory and aspects of attention, 
So like, for example, um, if you say to him, give me digits forward, he could do pretty well on that, five or seven, between five and seven digits forward. And then I said, do it backwards, two, four, he's supposed to say four, two, he could only do three. For someone who is as intelligent, he's an intelligent person, intelligent as him, it was a low score. So then I looked at um, attention and I gave one test um, to check out attention and uh, his score was the uh, CPT. The Connors Continuous Performance Test. He scored so low on it, I was surprised. So I gave it to him three times. And he scored as if he was neurologically impaired with an intentional problem or, you know, a diagnosis of ADHD. Uh, I didn't stand on that test alone. So I also gave uh, another test called the ACT. It's an uh, auditory consonant test. So it's something like this. You say to the person three consonants, like I'm just making this up, A, B, C. And then you say 200, and the person has to count backwards by threes. 200, 197, 194, 191, all the way back. Then you get to either 9 or 18 or 36 seconds. You say, what were the three words? And uh, uh, usually the person would say ABC with uh, Michael. He scored at the first and the second percentile level. It was a low score. Then what also, does that low score tell you? He has an attentional problem. He's all over the place. He's like scattered. The scattered quality he has... I started picking up when I was talking with him. He'd be uh, saying to me, wait a minute, I got to tell you this, I got to tell you that. And his thoughts were not linear. It wasn't like he was following, you know, in a way that I could follow easily. It was difficult, you know, to follow. And what could cause someone to score and react like that? It's hard to say 100% because he has um, he had a fracture of the skull when he was age eight. He also had eight to 12 uh, concussions. Falling from a horse, Dr. Picardo uh, mentioned to me that he also fell when he was roofing his house. And she said that he was too macho to want to go into the hospital. He used to do a lot of construction around his property. But uh, it could be from the fall. It could be uh, some other developmental problem, right? I don't know. But he has, he has an intentional problem. And his thoughts are scattered. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. After asking Dr. Hassan about the source of Michael Barrison's attention deficit, defense attorney Edward Bolinkus moves on to inquire about the witness's observations of the defendant in the aftermath of the shooting of Ms. Kanarak. In reviewing the discovery, uh, did you review the injury that Michael Barrison suffered in this incident? Yes. What, if any, impact could they have had on his uh, neuro? psychological testing. He has no memory for the incident. And in my report, I noted uh, a reputable uh, neuropsychiatrist, uh, Cummings, from California. He gave two examples. He said that uh, Gene Tunney, who was a prize fighter who fought against Dempsey, he dropped out of uh, boxing because he started having amnesia, periodic bouts of amnesia. And then and the, the doctor gave the, uh, an example of a, another prize fighter who was fighting a fight and from the fourth round on, he didn't even know he won the fight. 
until I was late, he had to be told. So he was, uh, to me, he looked like he lost the mixed martial art fight. He had severe bruising in his face. He had bleeding under the left ear, I think bleeding from the right eye. He looked like he had a, was given a workout. Now it's possible that the, uh, the beating you know, affected his memory. I can't say 100%, but it may have uh, impaired what they call consolidation. Would uh, his previous uh, head injuries that you mentioned impact on a subsequent, uh, have an impact on subsequent beatings? Yes, because if you're, if you're like a price fighter and you get beaten a lot of times, let's say later in life, you hit your head, it could uh, have a, more of an impact than if it was the first time. The more prior blows to the head, especially in the front of the face or wherever he got hurt, uh, it's going to have a greater impact than just one beating. Did you test for executive functions? Yes. What, what are executive functions? Well, the executive functions, I, I, looked, I tried to look at it like differently. Uh, executive functions are like organization, uh, planning, uh, things of that sort. He scored well on that. I also gave him a test among the executive functions that picks up if there's some f form of brain damage either acute or diffuse. He didn't have any problems with that. The only thing that I did notice in terms of executive functions is that he has some kind of nonverbal visual problem. And like if you ask him to draw a pattern, a complex pattern, he doesn't draw the outside. He draws like a little bit of it. It's as if he has trouble forming a visual picture of something. I don't know if that's from the, f and it's unusual. I don't know if that's from the uh, head trauma or what, but People who tend to have some kind of executive dysfunction, sometimes when they uh, try to do a task, they don't organize it. His was like uh, all over the place in that regards. Any other tests? All right. So um, because he claimed that he had uh, amnesia for the event, first of all, I also wanted to do uh, validity testing. So the most important validity testing for cognitive is the VIP and uh, it showed uh, no um, feigning on either. When you say validity testing, you administered a specific test to determine whether or not Michael Baverstone was feigning. Faking. Faking, not remembering the event. I wanted to see, because people who are feigning, they typically try to claim all manner of uh, memory impairment. They overplay their hand. He didn't do that. His memory was not, not terrible or anything of that sort. And on the, um, the VIP, it came out that he was honest and genuine. Except, I have to say this, on one part of the VIP, is a nonverbal part, it indicated there's a computer program on there that he had trouble maintaining his attention on, a non on the nonverbal part of the test. But even with that, it came out that uh, he was uh, conclusively um, genuine in how he responded. He showed effort and intent to do well on that test. And what does that have to do with your opinion as to whether or not he's feigning? He wasn't feigning memory impairment. And if he's claiming that he can't remember, I tend to uh, buy what he's saying, except that I don't know if it's psychogenic. I, I put down it's a dissociative amnesia from stress. But it could be from the beating. It could be from the uh, prior head injuries or what? So it could be either from a physical injury or from a mental? Yes. And if I might interject, I just read a recent uh, review article that it was uh, from um, a university in uh, Holland. The program is like criminology there. And they studied um, 20 years of uh, worldwide uh, claims of dissociative disorder. They looked at the studies themselves. And the problem is that the people who did the studies, they didn't rule out TBI. A lot of the people had like 
What's TBI? Uh, traumatic brain injury. They had mild traumatic brain injury. And they didn't real rule that out as the reason the person couldn't remember. So in his case, I put down that he had an emotional type of loss of memory, but he also had, you have to keep in mind that he had a beating. Did you do any memory tests? Yes, I did. And, um, and, and why did you do a memory test when you were evaluating Michael Barrison's state of mind at the time of the incident? Well, I want to, first of all, I wanted to see if he had some kind of significant brain damage that can influence the results. And like I just said, that people who are feigning amnesia or memory impairment, uh, they tend to overplay their hand. So they have uh, memory impairment all over the place. His actually was very specific in one little area, and that was nonverbal memory. And were there any validity uh, portions of those tests? Well, the validity was the VIP. I also did uh, another test called the CVLT, and I also did another test called the TOM. The CVLT is a list learning test and it has a validity component built into it. The bottom line is that he was not feigning on uh, that test. On the TOM, which is nonverbal memory, recognition memory, he had a poor score. What does that indicate to you? I didn't know whether it was from the fact that he had problem with nonverbal memory or what, but you know, uh, he was given four tests, three out of the four came out fine. The, the, the VIP is the most powerful one of those different tests. And how did he come out on Fine. He was not uh, feigning. Did you do any perceptual tests? I did. Which ones? Well, the tests that I gave were from the, um, the NAB, uh, that's the Neuropsychological Assessment Battery. So you have a whole bunch of tests on that. Then I supplemented that with some other tests uh, that I gave. I gave a test called the Ray Complex Figure Test. On that test, I saw that he, he worked very piecemeal in terms of putting things together. He also has a memory component on that. He scored poorly in terms of memory for nonverbal. His perceptual functioning was borderline in a couple of tests. I don't know if, uh, you know, if I did more assessment with him, which I thought was like, uh, I didn't see the utility of it, but you know, maybe I could determine exactly what the problem is with the nonverbal functioning. And finally, did you do uh, any tests with respect to language? I did. And, and why would you test um, language. Because you have a beating to your front of your head, and this is like the frontal area of the skull. Uh, it could damage uh, your verbal production. So if you say to an individual, I'm going to give you uh, 60 seconds and tell me as many words that begin with the letter F-A-F-A-S. First with F. Don't give me people's names like Fernando. Don't give me places like France. Don't give me numbers like five. And you total it up. There's um, tables that are based on age, education, ethnicity, and he scored uh, very fine. Average score is between 12 to 15 words per minute, and he was like 18, 18 per minute. So from the beating he had, it didn't affect that language production area. You testified to a great number of tests that you administer. Were the tests consistent with each other? The tests were consistent in showing no feigning, no feigning on personality or cognitive. What else? Did the test indicate to you based on your score? The test, in, the test indicate that he suffers from uh, paranoia, delusional disorder uh, of a very high uh, level, and that it's very significant. Right. Now, did you review Dr. Simmering's evaluation? Yes, I did. And did you review that stack of uh, 91 pages that were provided? To yes. I put down 51, but I don't know exactly what the number is for the simple reason I did count 91, but then I noticed in the pages themselves that there were duplicates. So I didn't actually count the clean pages. So I don't know if it's 
51, 77, or 91. The total that I went through was 91, but there's duplicates in there. Now, uh, did you review any uh, discovery that was uh, provided by the prosecutor? Yes, I went over the police reports, Morris County Department's reports, uh, the uh, hospital reports, the EMT reports, the emergency room reports, the orthopedic reports. Did you review any uh, social media? Posts? Oh, yes. This was rough because there were like uh, six boxes of Facebook uh, posts, like over 20,000. I went through a number of them, but uh, I didn't record all that I went through on my list. But there's one box uh, for uh, Mr. Goodwin. I think it's um, 2,000 or so items. I also went over uh, text messaging back and forth between different parties. With regards to the uh, social media post, did you talk to Michael Barrison about various posts that he saw that Lauren Cataract posted about him? Yes. Did you discuss any posts where she talked about going to war? Yes. What, if any, impact did those posts have on Michael Barrison? Well, he's calm right now, but when I was talking with him, he was like petrified. He was frightened when he read and I read it. To, I read him the post to see what it was. What it was like, you know, how he reacted. He was frightened. Did you go over uh, a post where Cataract talked about uh, weapons, guns? Yes, and also saw pictures she had. And what specific effect did that have on Michael Barrison? He was super frightened. He remained super frightened. On one of the times that I was there, when I was leaving, he said to me that he wanted to judge if he was freed. Objection, judge. Don't say anything about. Okay. Questions withdrawn. In the discovery that you reviewed, uh, did you discuss the fact that Lauren Cataract was tape recording Michael Barrison? Yes. And did you discuss what impact that recording was having on his mental state? He was incredibly frightened. He had no refuse, no place to go where he felt safe. He was very upset. He said, uh, this is an example of a, a terrorist. You know, he was... Uh, frightened, you know, tremendous amount. And it upset him that um, she had a post that she referred to him and the other people there scurrying around, going into their car, you know, to, to speak to each other. But he was just very frightened. What impact does someone thinking, whether it's true or not, that every word that you say is being listened to? Judge, I'm going to object to the general nature of the question. I I, yeah, I think it's a little broad. Rephrase it. Rephrase it, please. What effect is Michael Barrison think, thinking that every word that he spoke to anyone was being recorded by someone that he was afraid of? It made him super paranoid, super paranoid, that everything he was doing was being monitored. Not only being recorded, he thought that it was being filmed. Did you review posts with him where Lauren Cataract was telling people on Facebook, uh, Facebook that Michael Barrison was uh, threatening her life. That super, super frightened him. Super. Because he has distorted thinking. So here's what his thinking was like. He said to me that um, the Parkland shooting person stated that he was bullied. Then he said, Canarac said, she's bullied. So then he said, my conclusion is she's going to kill me just like the Parkland shooter. He, that's how he, his deduction was off. But that's what he how we came up with that. Did you discuss with him numerous contacts that he made with people who Cataract had previously posted things on Facebook about? Yes. 
of, for instance, the name Staggert and Parkinson. I remember that. Now, I don't want you to say what those posts contained, but you did, did you discuss those posts with Michael Barrison? Yes. What did he say about those posts, and, and what was their effect on his mental state? Well, the effect was it made him even more uh, frightened. He saw how uh, other people were treated, and he thought that there was a greater danger. And he actually admitted that to me. So I asked him about, like, you know, how things transpired to cause him all this difficulty. And he says, well, it was the pattern of everything that came his way. He looked up, he got information on Canarac, her behavior, and everything together made him more and more frightened. But he felt as if there was a realistic threat out there. Now, did you discuss with him him leaving his residence a week or so before the incident? Yes. What did he indicate to you was the reason that he left? He feared for his life. Who was he living there with? With uh, Mary Haskins and uh, I think for a time her son. And where did he uh, go after he fled his residence? He went to the recreation room at the stable. It was a large room that was furnished that had a kitchen area there and place to sleep. And he moved in there. A reception area, that's what it was called. Did Michael Barrisone, based on your discussions with him and the discovery that he reviewed, uh, take any steps to try to protect himself? He was frightened. He, he felt as if uh, when he'd be talking to either Mary Haskins or someone else, um, that uh, Canarac was quoting directly what he was saying. And uh, he, he got more and more scared, you know. And uh, what he did was, he hired someone to sweep the barn area to see if they could find any of the tape recorders. I'm going to show you D700-2. Did you review this in your uh, discovery? Yes, I did. Uh, yes. What is that? This is a contract for debugging. It's, I think, uh, $5,000 and um, of the a certain area of the barn. Did Michael Barrison hire uh, anyone else? Well, he hired a uh, person to watch overnight and to uh, sit in his uh, SUV. And, um, and why did he hire that person? Because he was fearful. Because uh, he was saying that uh, Lauren Canarac and Rob Goodwin would be wandering around at night, in the middle of the night, and he was fearful that they were going to do something. Do what? Burn the barn down, harm people. And uh, he, when he stayed at the reception area, he made sure that all the windows and doors were locked. Did he do any other, anything, anything else to protect himself? Did he hire a private? Oh investigator? yes, yes, yes. He hired a private investigator to find out if they had a prior arrest record, and that upset him too because he saw. Okay, we, we cannot go into okay. the specifics, but seven hundred a dash one. Is this the background check that you talked to Michael Barrison about? Yes. And can you tell the jury what impact Michael Barrison getting this document from the private investigator had on his mental state? It intensified the fear, the fear factor. He felt as if uh, that there was a whole bunch of information that was pointing in the direction that these are dangerous people. Did Michael Barrison ever call the police? Yes, he did. Approximately how many times? Approximately four times. And did you discuss those specific instances with him? Yes, I did. And, and what did he indicate to you with regards to each and every one of those instances? Total frustration. Uh, he was trying to say how scared he was. He felt as if they were poo-pooing it, and uh, he had no place to turn. That's how he felt. He had no recourse. And what did that do to his psychic? He felt alone. He felt vulnerable. He, you know, 
He felt as if uh, he felt as if he couldn't fight back, so to speak. At some point, was he told that the Morris County Prosecutor's Office was consulted? Yes. Did they, anything happen with regards to them consulting about this incident? They based on your review of the discovery. The, the AP reviewed the information that uh, Michael found upsetting, and they didn't find it of sufficient uh, type to uh, follow through with any kind of action. They basically told him uh, that it was a landlord-tenant difficulty. When Michael Barrison heard that, both from the police and the prosecutor's office, what effect did it have on him? Felt more vulnerable. He had no protection. Now, did Michael Barrison talk to you about uh, his knowledge of Goodwin and Canarac's drug use? Yes. I'm not going to ask you specifics, but did that play any role in Michael Barrison's mental state with regards to your evaluation? Yes. He felt both. How so? He felt both of them were unstable to begin with, and he thought with the drug use that they're even more, even more unstable. And then, uh, if I recall correctly, he spoke to someone who thought that drugs might be planted on his vehicle, and he got even more scared. And in addition to that information, did you talk to Michael Barrison about Lauren Canarac posting things on social media indicating that she had mental or psychological problems? Yes. Did you discuss that with Michael? I did. And, and what impact did that have on his mental state? Everything was drip, drip, drip of making him more frightened. He particularly was frightened when uh, she essentially said that uh, she had multiple personalities and she could not be responsible. Then he combined that with images he saw of her where there were gun images, uh, statements that she made about shooting at uh, people who tried to... Uh, Objection, Judge. Okay. All right, sustained, Mr. Belinkus, as previously discussed. Did Michael Barrison talk to you about an incident where Robert Goodwin made uh, some gesture with his uh, finger? Mm -hmm. Yes. W what specifically did he tell you about that? He said on August 6th, when the people from Washington Township came to his place, it was like three different people, a number of cars that came up. He said Rob Goodwin was 15 feet away, and he placed his hand in the form of a gun to his head and uh, said words to the effect, uh, watch out, or something like that. And he smiled on his face. What did Michael Barrison say about that smile to you? He said it scared him because he remembered something that happened a long, long time ago when he was a little boy. He was sexually assaulted by someone. And he says, oh, I saw the same kind of eyes, the frightening eyes. They scared him. The same thing when he had trouble with his mother when she burnt his hand. It was the same kind of eyes, and he, it, it made him frightened. He was, it, it was just fearful of them. Did you re review the police reports with regards to the day of the incident? Yes. Did you re review the reports regarding DCPP's contact with Mary Haskins and, and Michael Barrison? Yes. Now, what did Michael Barrison tell you with regards to what he heard during that meeting with DCPP? The only thing I thought he said that he heard the word of sexual abuse and that he was worried that the family would be broken up, the children taken away. He had a distorted view that if the children were taken, if he and Mary Haskins were arrested, his biggest fear, which is, this is completely delusional, his biggest fear, I think, is delusional. His biggest fear was that um, Lauren Canarac and Rob Goodwin would kill the children. And he linked it up with seeing some posts where they were uh, trying to get information on the two children. But he was frightened. 
Judge objection. There's no evidence of that. See you outside more. With Judge Taylor calling for a sidebar conference, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Michael Barrison. Join us on our next installment as we continue our look at the testimony of psychologist Dr. Charles Hassan. If you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracon. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and the trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison.